Good morning, beautiful saunterers. Welcome to another saunter. It is sunny outside, however, it looks a bit dingy here. However, I am bright and cheerful, and <laughs> God is good. And we are in Hebrews chapter 5 today. So, wow, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, here we come once again to your word, once again to the book of Hebrews, and we ask, Lord, you'd open it up to us, make it live. Let it speak to our hearts. Reveal yourself to us today in a deeper, more intimate, personal way than we could have imagined. In your beautiful name, amen. <clears throat> Good morning, Fran. Great to see you. You're a very faithful friend, Fran. <laughs> so we're in chapter five today. Good morning, Ingrid. Great to see you. And uh, we've been talking about the role of Jesus <clears throat> as the great high priest. We also discover that he is referred to as an apostle. He obviously is the best of the best of all the ministries that are ever listed in the Bible. He is the, the um, quintessential, he's the archetype of all ministries, I guess, the one that we should aspire to, the one we should model ourselves on. Any, any one of us who's in any kind of ministry at all, from just being a friend to a parent, to a pastor, to a teacher, an evangelist, a prophet, apostle, any of these ministries, administrator, Sunday school teacher, any of these ones, we should model ourselves on Jesus, obviously. It seems obvious, but sometimes Christian ministries, oh, don't look so much like Jesus always. And that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Anyway, let's let's not get off track right at the beginning. We'll come we'll come on to some things as we go. So um, Hebrews five verse one: For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Good morning, Allison and Joan. So. The high priest back in the old days, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, was chosen by God, by God's sovereign choice, and he chose Aaron to be the first high priest. But this priest was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. We'll come, well, I want to underline that in it's on behalf of men. So let's read the whole verse. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Right, let's hold fire. Right, so the high priest, this this kind of pinnacle of the priestly office, this individual was chosen by God to act on the on behalf of the people in relation to God. And so they had a role as a mediator and somebody who would go into the very presence of God one-on-one, -on -one, once a year, on behalf of the whole nation of people. But their role was to mediate between the people, the community of God's people and God himself. Now, in a, in a mediation role, the mediator represents both parties. But this 
it, it, it's quite interesting that the writer here makes this distinction that the the high priest is appointed to act on behalf of men. So it's like, and you kind of think, why say that when a mediator is to represent both parties? And yet what the writer's doing here is saying that actually God is so great. Really, he doesn't need anyone to represent him. He can represent himself. He's the strongest one in the conversation or in the, the kind of relationship. So he's the most powerful one. But the the human being is the weak, vulnerable one who needs a good mediator. And so I love that the way this is sort of put so gently and so humanly that this this person that was selected was was chosen on purpose to represent the people and to be gentle with the wayward with the ignorant and wayward and you kind of think well ignorant ignorant people need a smack you know it's like ah shake them up somebody but actually god in his incredible grace has designed this priestly role in the old testament which is beautifully and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, to have an element of gentleness in it. And so when we look at Jesus, the great high priest, the absolute top one, the one who's really makes all the other previous high priests, makes their job fulfilled and complete, he is a human being who is fully God and yet fully human. This is incredible. But this is intentional as well, because God wants that level of connection through in Jesus to the people who he represents. So when you and I come to Jesus with our stuff and our kind of seemingly in terms of global, I don't know, in terms of global issues, sometimes the things we pray about seem so trivial and yet they're important to us. But the whole point is that our high priest understands us and knows what it is like to be one of us and so when we come to him he's gentle and even when we're wayward he's gentle with us oh, it's incredible um galatians chapter 5 lists the um the fruit of the spirit and one of those fruits which is often easily overlooked is gentleness and it so sort of sneaks in there um one of the um in somewhere it says let your gentleness be seen by everyone and rebuke this person gently and this kind of thing. And so gentleness is a quality that God displays and embodies in Jesus towards his people. And so he's not brutal and callous and harsh and cold and indifferent. He's gentle and even with the wayward and the ignorant, it seems, why would you bother being gentle with them unless your heart was to win them? And in conversations, pastorally, where we're dealing with somebody who seems to be a bit ignorant and a bit wayward, it's like, what is the point of this conversation? Actually, if we would just step back one moment and say, Jesus, let your gentleness, that fruit of the Spirit, be now embodied in me. Or if we're going into a situation with someone who is a challenging person to talk to and difficult um, and we know it could get sweaty and heated, let's go in there and say, Jesus, can, before we go in, can you clothe me in gentleness? Can, can I somehow, and we know, don't we, from the book of Proverbs, it says a gentle answer turns away wrath, it turns away 
anger. But here, here we have this great high priest, Jesus, able to deal gently, gently with the ignorant and wayward. But the, um, the, in the old covenant, of course, the, the high priest is aware of his own failings and his own shortcomings, and he has to make these offerings for his own sins as well. Jesus does not have to do that. The weakness Jesus is conscious of is the inherent weakness and vulnerability of human flesh that he became a partaker in, as we saw in right back in chapter two, I think. So Jesus became a partaker in flesh and blood. And now even now he stands in heaven as a man or he's seated in heaven as a man and somebody once very cleverly said that the only man-made things in heaven are the nail prints in Jesus's hands. And I think it's just so incredible that the risen Jesus still has the evidence of the nails in his hands and his feet and the sword mark in his side. It's like he's chosen to hang on to that, those Badges of honour, but those, not just badges of honour, but those things that identify him as truly human. And I think this is just beyond wonderful. It's just beyond fabulous. It's just incredible. This Jesus, our high priest, our great high priest. Wow. So when we come to Jesus, we're coming to one who is gentle with us. And even when we're, Jesus, I've sinned. Oh man, Lord God, will you have mercy on me? Will you forgive me? He's like, do you know what? I am reaching out to you with grace and mercy and gentleness because I love you. And it just makes us even more, love him even more, doesn't it? And even more broken about his incredible kindness good morning willow and lisa and pat and mike verse five so also christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said you are my son today i have begotten you as he says also in another place you are a priest forever after the order of melchizedek right i just want to try and say something that makes a bit of sense of these two verses so that that one there where he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. The word begotten in the old um, King James version of the Bible means was the father of or gave, you know, the begat as in kind of fathered this child. And so <clears throat> it's easy to come away from verses like this with the idea that somehow there was a time when the son was begotten by the father in, in the dim mists of time before even Jesus was born, back in, back whenever, when. And therefore, if that happened, then he must be somewhat less than the father because he's the son of the father. And yet then we read right in the beginning of this book of Hebrews that actually... When God created the world, everything was made by him and for him. He's the, or at least in Colossians it says that, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, through whom also he created the world. So the son is right there at the beginning creating the world. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He is, ah, you know, so, 
So the idea that we have here is not that there was a day when Jesus was, where, where the Son was begotten by the Father, but rather there was a day when a decree was made. And let's look in Psalm chapter 2 to get the actual comments that the guy, the, the writer here is quoting from. So Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, it's, he, this is David writing, um, I believe, and he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, he's talking about the son. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about God, the son. And there's this decree that is some some how made in heaven that there's this relationship between the the father son holy spirit the, the this relationship with um the father and the son right now so there's this decree made back then we don't know how that works it's a mystery to us but then we have with jesus when he gets baptized and matthew tells us the story um that when Jesus is baptized, he's in the water and he comes up out of the water and God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So he once again is making that declaration. This is my son. You are my son. But he's identifying Jesus as the son. So God speaks sovereignly from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. We also have the same thing happening on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured and his face and his clothes become super white and bright and shining and radiant like the sun. And he's like the visions of God seen by Ezekiel and some of the other prophets. He's literally radiant and glorious. And the, the, the disciples who are with him are absolutely mind boggled and blown away by this whole experience. And they want to kind of freeze frame it and stay in this moment forever and then God speaks and says this is my son listen to him this is my son in whom I'm well pleased listen to him and it's like God is it's like that declaration back in eternity you are my son the second person of the trinity if we're going to be theological father son holy spirit right back there in eternity when that decree went forth if you like it has reverberated and echoed all the way down through history and in those days when jesus was walking on the earth it's like the father can't keep it a secret he doesn't want to keep it a secret he's also he's already we've read in chapter one he's already commissioned all these angels to sing and celebrate at jesus's birth and worship him he's commanded all his angels to worship him which identifies Jesus clearly as God otherwise they wouldn't be permitted to worship him but then God keeps breaking into the story it's like in the Beano comics the editor's voice keeps popping into the story and saying this is my son everybody pay attention notice this is my son this is the one I spoke about before right here he is he's on the earth Boom, listen to him, look at him, consider him, right? And so the writer to the Hebrews is trying to connect us with this reality. But it is a theological 
kind of idea. It's, it's tricky sometimes to take the mystical God, this God who is so vast and so great and so beyond us, and try and condense him into a logical form that satisfies our human desire for logic. <laughs> right, I hope that was helpful. Verse 6. I might have some comments probably from some theologians who might have some better ways of putting it. But verse 6, he says, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, I'm not going to say much about Melchizedek, except we're going to get a bit more of a talk about him in chapter 7. So we'll reserve it for then, except to say that Melchizedek was a character who appeared at the time of Abraham. He appeared to Abraham And there is a whole cloud of mystery around this amazing guy. And we'll have a good look at it in a couple of days' time. So, meanwhile, (laughs) so there we go. Hold that thought. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, so in the days when Jesus occupied a, you know, like literal flesh and blood body on the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered right so what we're doing now is we're linking back to this idea of the humanity of the high priest being so important the, it, it had to be that the high priest was flesh and blood was made of the same material of the people that he was representing. Good morning, Jane, and good morning, Hazel. So it it was vital. But listen, we get this little insight into Jesus because there's so much that the gospel writers tell us about Jesus, but there's so much they miss out as well. And you kind of think, oh, if only we had a little bit more insight into some of this stuff. But this the, the writer to the Hebrews has given us a little bit of insight here. And he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Well, we know about some of those. We know about his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood. He was in deep anguish. He says, my soul is in travail. Now I'm deeply troubled. I want to pray, Father, save me from this hour, but not my will, but yours be done. Let this cup pass away from me. And he's like contemplating the Ah, oh, the sheer horror of the crucifixion where he where he will take on board onto himself somehow the whole sin of the whole world and will become this sacrificial lamb. And and so we know that Jesus cried out to God with loud cries and with tears. And God could have saved him. The he could have whisked him out of the situation, couldn't he? It's like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. He could have just called for help and said, it's too much. I can't do it. I'm out of here. Just take me, just call me home, Father. And it, and he could have done that. But he, and so he cried out, but not just, it was with supplication, praying for you and me. It wasn't just oh, praying for himself and thinking about himself and how much he was suffering. It right there, just before his death in John chapter 17, we get this incredible prayer, which is referred to as the high priestly prayer. And we just see just the kind of high priest that Jesus is. Honestly, if you've got time when you finish this, listening to this, just sit down for a few minutes and read John chapter 17. 
it is gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And it, and we really capture the heart of Jesus, his great high priest, as he intercedes for people he knows who are alive on the earth now, then rather, but also people who he knows will come after him and will follow after him. You and me. I mean, gosh, in those prayers, as Jesus is praying in that garden, somehow he's reaching forward into history and he's praying for you and me. I mean, goodness me, that is incredible. And so he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And I think, oh God, that we would have prayers with loud cries and tears, not in a theatrical way, but just that people would experience that deep working of the Holy Spirit as we pray that we would pray in in, this, in a similar manner to Jesus and we'd be caught up in that process of what we call intercession, which is being, because we too have a priestly role that we get from Jesus, where we intercede and we become the person praying for the people around us and so on. So he's, oh God, let us let us learn how to pray with loud cries and tears. But listen to this, he was heard because of his reverence, or some translations say because of his reverent submission. What was his prayer? Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Right, I need to skip on through. So verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, just on the Melchizedek thing, let's just say it's an an unending priesthood. It's a priesthood that never ends. So verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. This is really interesting, isn't it? Because you could, because God never had to obey anybody, did he? He was always God. He's always existed. He doesn't need permission to do anything. And yet Jesus here as a son says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He says explicitly, he says, I only do what I see the father doing. I don't act on my own. The son doesn't act on his own. I only do what I see my father doing. And so he learns what obedience costs because of what he suffers in doing it. You and I will learn what obedience costs as we suffer in the process. But what what he's saying again is that this high priest we have has been through the school of submission, has been through the school of obedience to his father and has, you know, borne the pain and the suffering that comes along with that. There is suffering sometimes associated with obedience. There's always a process where we learn to put down what we might have preferred and we say, God, not my will, but yours be done in this situation. And I think that is a way of life that we develop, but we have to keep it going and sustain it throughout our whole lives. It's daily process. Good morning, Shanika. Um, so verse 11, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Wow. Let's comment on that in a second. Verse 12. For for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But sol- um, since he is a child, or she, and we could obviously interchange all of these pronouns here for um, chosen from among men and women, to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God, we could say he or she, um, <clears throat> for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, righteousness since he or she is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right. So remember, we were talking about drifting away and we were talking about today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the way the writer here is addressing them, it would seem as if the Hebrews he's speaking to have become, they have allowed their hearts to become hard. They have They've become dull of hearing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's that process of quietly closing down towards God and drifting away. The thing that keeps us sharp is being obedient speedily and promptly to God. So when God speaks to us, we're prompt and we're urgent in our obedience. We don't kind of put it off and procrastinate because actually that is the way we become hard-hearted and we become dull of hearing. Good morning, Wendy. Good to see you. And so he's saying, actually, I'd love to be able to teach you a bit more clearly on some of this stuff, but you've become dull of hearing. You've not been obedient to the word of God. You've not been quick and sharp. And now you you still need me to reiterate the basic principles. You, you, you're kind of not really wanting to move on in into some meatier things and um verse 14 is the one really it's a it's a real good one to remember but solid food is for the mature now mature doesn't mean that you have a significant wealth of bible knowledge that is not maturity that's just having a lot of bible knowledge you can be very um read up and studied and full of Bible knowledge and able to quote scriptures verbatim and all the rest of it and know where it says this and that and the other and know what this means and that means and the other means. But actually, that is not maturity. That's just knowledge. But maturity is those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. An athlete trains constantly to stay match ready or race ready they have to stay sharp and focused and train every day sometimes two times twice a day they eat special food they think they their focus is on what they're doing and it really is a very very focused life and he's saying actually there is training here involved to become mature as a christian we train ourselves what do we do we, it says here um, that we who have their powers of discernment trained. Other translations, I think the NIV says, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so we've learned to make choices that keep us walking in God's way and keep us away from temptation and away from the 
the slippery slope into evil and um, hardening our hearts and disobedience and all that kind of stuff. And so he's saying, listen, you guys, you are not mature. You, you can't be addressed as mature because you're not taking these daily disciplines of training yourself and your mindset is not in the game. You're thinking casually about things that are life and death importance and actually listening to the listening to the voice of God and listening to his word and allowing it to sharpen us. And in um, chapter four, we said that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between the soul and the spirit. And it's that kind of... <sighs> daily regular exposing ourselves to the word of God and letting it come and sort us out and judge our hearts and correct us when we're starting to get sloppy and kind of growing dull staying sharp wow <laughs> there's a lot to think about today I would love it if we would just take away that thought about Jesus that he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward <laughs> Gosh, that is more grace than we deserve, isn't it? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for just who you are. You are utterly amazing. We thank you for your gentleness, which has led us and kept us all these years and leads us out of darkness into light. And Lord, we ask today that your presence will guide us. You'll speak to us and we'll hear your voice and we'll be quick to respond and sharp in our obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a stunning day, everyone. God bless you. And if you've enjoyed this saunter, please do like it and share it and pass it on and share the love. And it's all good.